Okay, we're live, and uh, sorry for not getting the link up a little bit sooner. Um, I got no questions. Um, actually, there's there's actually a few um, in my uh, file, my repository of questions, but um, I didn't get any today um, or this week specifically for this program. So I've actually queued up a bunch of videos, and you're not going to be able to actually see the videos. So I'll put links to them in the description. But I wanted to do a little a little uh, program, so kind of a special program here on N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright um, was the former Bishop of Durham, um, who's one of the um, uh, bishops in the Church of England, uh, who was appointed to that office by um, Tony Blair, I, I, I guess, long ago when, when that first happened. But he's retired, and he's an academic, and I've talked about N.T. Wright before. Um, he kind of... Uh, made a big splash when he, he wrote the book of what St. Paul really said. I've got it. It's right over there on my shelf. And it's not a good book and it's uh, very confusing. And of course, um, George Grant uh, wrote a glowing endorsement of it in World Magazine. And N.T. Wright was someone that people were talking about. Phil Johnson has done a lot of stuff on N.T. Wright. Uh, there's a book called Fool's Gold, uh, which is really a really good book that's got um, essays in it on some of the latest fads in evangelicalism, like N.T. Wright, The New Perspectives on Paul. There's a chap, um, Wild at Heart, that book about how men are, you know, wild at heart, and we need a woman to rescue, and we need things to conquer, and all that kind of cool stuff. So, um, yeah, Jordan Foster, yeah, I just listened to you talk on penal substitution. Okay, yeah, fire away, uh, Mr. Foster, if you've got a, a question about um, Bishop Wright. I've taken the time to read um, seven or eight of his books. Um, I've got more of them. Um, one of the reasons I, I just quit kind of quit reading him is he's incredibly redundant, and he says the same things over and over and over again, and he's also very confusing. And what he gives you with, with one statement, he takes away in the next sentence. And um, we're, we're actually warned about that very kind of thing in script in the next sentence. And... Um, we're actually warned about that very kind of thing in scripture. We're warned about um, people who contradict themselves. And that has been a tactic of false teachers for a very long time, um, is they'll say what they know sounds orthodox because they're trying to get orthodox people to believe them. And then they'll turn right around and say something that's liberal and weird. It's that way both sides can accuse the other, well, you're not, you didn't hear what he said over here. You didn't read what he said over there. And blah, 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 blah. First uh, Timothy 6.20 uh, Paul says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Now, the, the word that's uh, translated as opposing arguments is the Greek word antithesis. It says, kai antithesis, tes pseudonumu, gnosteos. Okay, the uh, contradictions falsely called knowledge. Um, contradictions. Watch out for people that contradict themselves a lot. Um, that's that's always a bad thing. People that contradict themselves a lot um, are to be avoided um, because they're almost certainly false teachers and are trying to hide something. Um, they're trying to get uh, people on both sides of something to agree with them. And a lot of times in the, in the name of Christian charity, people will do that and they will um, try to defend so-and-so, etc. And many, 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 many people have done that with N.T. Wright. But for the record, um, I want to play quickly here. At first, I want to play a quote, a, a clip. Uh, someone asked Dr. Sproul about N.T. Wright, thankfully, uh, before he died. Um, and listen listen to this little clip here. I'll put uh, this link in the description here so people can uh, listen to this for themselves. But I want you to hear 
this um, Q&A thing about N.T. Wright. So let's queue up. Dr. Sproul, you quoted Martin Luther, uh, justification by faith alone is the foundation upon, upon which the church stands or falls. The question is, what is that, uh, what are we to believe about N.T. Wright's doctrine of imputation? What does the new perspectives on Paul do to solo fide? Destroys it. And the gospel. What? Did you hear what he said? What does N.T. Wright's view of imputation and the gospel and justification by faith alone do to it? As Sproul said, without a hesitation, destroys it. Listen to that again. Perspectives on Paul do to solo fide. Destroys it. And the gospel with it. Tell us what you really think. Well, Derek Thomas says, "Why don't you tell us what you really think?" I'm I'm appalled. All these other guys, these heavyweights up there on the, you know, Stephen Nichols and uh, there's Junior Sproul and there's Derek Thomas and everyone's just as quiet as can be. Listen to this. I'm trying to act with some restraint. <laughs> well, the second the second part of that question was, is his view heretical? What? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. You hear that? You hear that? If N.T. Wright's view of the gospel is not heresy, then there's no such thing as heresy. N.T. Wright's view of the gospel and of justification and of how you get to heaven, if he even believes there is such a place, is as heretical as it could possibly be. So listen to good Dr. Sproul again here. His view heretical. What? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. Such thing as heresy. Thank you, Dr. Sproul. We're really sad that you're gone. Uh, because the guys you've left behind are gutless. They're cowards. They won't call anything heresy. It's, well, this isn't really confessional, or this isn't this, and... You know we're, we're 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 you know we're we're not comfortable with this, and this is this definitely makes us you know this gives me pause. I mean, listen to that. Listen to how clear he is. Heretical. If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. Thank you. Such thing as heresy. That's right. He's right. Any of our other seminary professors care to take that on? <laughs> <laughs> Any other seminary professors? You you guys want to chime in and quit just sitting there? Listen, anybody, anyone? I'm willing to sit here all by myself and say that. I'd be willing to sit here all by myself and say that. Yeah, he's been by himself saying things like that for decades. And it's completely inexcusable. What are these people laughing at? I do have a follow-up question. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Dr. Thomas. Yes, I mean, heresy uh, is an emotive word, but... but but if, if at least in one aspect of new perspective, uh, the answer to the question, how is a person saved, is answered in an ecclesiastical dimension that you join the covenant community, that's heresy. That's it, it's, it really, Dr. Thomas, it's not, yeah, it is heresy. But um, they, they don't even have a category for being saved. New perspective, new perspective on Paul doesn't even have a category for that. Because there is no God of wrath to be saved from. There is no personal sin that you need an atonement for. I mean, right? 
flat out rejects, denies, and discards the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. It's just not part of his thinking at all. So, yeah, what must they do to be saved? They think that's a dumb question, because they don't even believe that there's a God who has wrath against sin. Medieval Catholicism. That's what the Reformation was was brought about. Wait a minute. Medieval Catholicism. Wait a minute. You join the covenant community. That's heresy. Mm -hmm. That's medieval Catholicism. That's what. No, because medieval medieval Catholicism did think that there was a God of wrath that you need to be saved from. Uh, New perspective doesn't. Right, right certainly doesn't believe that. The Reformation was was brought about to negate. So I, I have no hesitation in saying that that view is heretical. Now, the new perspective is a is a moving target. Uh, so I, I need to be careful about making particular individuals heretics, uh, because it's often very unclear. I mean, even in N.T. Wright, it's often very unclear as to exactly what it is that he's saying. And that's the problem. Um, I'm going to go on record here. If you're not clear about the gospel, you're a heretic. As long as as long as you give someone that out, well, you just don't understand. You you haven't interpreted me in the right way. You you didn't read what I said over the, said over there. An unclear gospel is a false gospel. An unclear gospel is a false gospel. Like uh, Norman Shepard. When Norman Shepard was teaching at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, they brought in like seven heavyweight Reformed theologians, seven of the best theologians alive, and they sat behind closed doors with that guy for hours and hours and hours, and nobody understood what he was talking about. Okay, he's a heretic. Okay, he's trying. He's try he knows where you're coming from, and he knows what he needs to try to say, but that's completely unacceptable. Even when he says it again and again and again. That's right. Nobody can understand what Rice is talking about. Even when he says it again and 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 again. As we're going to look here at some more videos. Um, okay. So, Jordan, what's your question about... about uh, oh, okay. Here, here it is. When people use the word pistis for faithfulness, or some say believing loyalty or fidelity, how do you combat that? That's not what pistis means. Um, pistis, the, the noun form, the noun of, of what we translate as belief. Um, I, the English word faith is a little ambiguous. I, I think it's better to use the word belief. Um, it is to believe something. Now, what is it that, that faith is? Like, as far as what is it that you're believing? To be a Christian means that I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I believe that that is what forgives me, and I believe that his righteousness is imputed to me, and that is how I'm saved. Okay? That's what faith... Faith simply lays hold of the righteousness and the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith does not do anything. Faith is not doing anything. It is simply receiving and resting upon Christ and his righteousness. Now, the word, the, the adjective, pistos, the adjectival form of, of pistos... It depends on context, Jordan. But pistos uh, can be translated as faithfulness. Uh, someone is is uh, uh, faithful, uh, meaning that they are they are a devoted follower of Christ. But that form and that nuance to, to the term is never, never used with regard to how we're justified before God. The term simply refers to uh, belief, meaning meaning to assent to the propositions that. Christ died for our sins, he was buried and rose again, and his righteousness is ours, and his cross forgives us of all of our sins, and you are relying upon that. So it's not it's not merely assenting to propositions, it is 
you are relying upon that. You are resting on the, the righteousness of someone else. When someone asks me, Pastor, what do you mean? Like, like you believe in Jesus and that you're saved because you believe in Jesus. When I say I believe in Jesus Christ, what I, what I mean by that is when I consider death, judgment, and my eternal existence after death, what I am relying on to get me past the final judgment into heaven is the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to me and his cross work accepted as the satisfaction for my sins. And that is the only thing I am trusting in. Justification by faith alone means attaining heaven by the righteousness and work of Christ alone. That's why the word sola is so important. Okay, it's not just a sloganeering against Rome or anything like that. It is, we believe that the only righteousness that can meet God's requirement is the righteousness that was achieved and performed by Jesus Christ alone. And that's where the word, that's where the word alone comes in. That's why it's so important. If someone says, I don't believe in sola fide because clearly in scripture we're told to do good works. Well, yes, well, of course we're told to do good works. We are creating Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. But those good works do not save us. They are the fruit and evidence that we're already saved, that we're already eternally right with God, that we already have a legal right to eternal life. Okay, and that's the thing that's being blurred and, and muddied. Okay, so, so Jordan, it depends on where, where the term is used. Uh, the term can refer to a person being faithful, but in the context that Paul uses justification, uh, by faith, um, for example, let's look at Romans uh, three twenty. I wish I could pull up Bible works when we're doing this live stuff. It'd be easier if I could show it to. You. Okay, um, there are the term, the noun pistos. It says lagedzamatha gardekaiusun dekaiusstai. Excuse me. Uh, therefore, we reckon a man to be declared righteous, and then pistos is in the dative case by faith. A man to, is justified by faith. Chorus ergon namu, apart from works of law. So my law-keeping, my obedience, my faithfulness are not part of this. What is faith? What is that word pistis? In fact, let me look, see if, I, if uh, Bauer, Docker, Arndt, Gingrich actually references Romans 3.28 in its le lexical entry for pistis. Does it do that? Um, okay, there's pistis. Okay. Okay, P pistis. Um, simply means to believe, to a state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. And that's a good, that's a really good definition. Okay. So we're relying on Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith rests upon Christ. So it's not that, that we have faith or faithfulness. It's the one in whom we trust that saves us. Okay. Uh, G dot. Who, who is that? Oh, Seattle from Seattle. Well, thank Well, thank you for, for tuning in. I appreciate you. All right, let's let's listen to another um, another NT Wright clip here. I, I, I listened to this one earlier this week, and these show up in my YouTube feed, and it's good YouTube, uh, it's good discussion fodder because um, NT Wright was really kind of a darling in a lot of reform circles for many years, and I never understood why. And I guess now that I'm a little older and I've read more and I've been a pastor longer, I don't hesitate about calling this stuff out anymore. I used to have a little bit of hesitation because I thought, well, no, not many other people are, are doing that. Maybe 
Maybe they know something I don't. Well, I'm convinced now that no, they don't know something I don't. I know the gospel. And I know that this stuff is, is wrong. I want you to just listen. This video is called, What Did Paul Mean by What We Call Justification by Faith? Good question. Now, whatever he says here, this is trampling on holy ground. This is talking about the most important question there is. Okay, so listen to, to this. Towards the end of the book, and I'm quoting you, you pose this question. If the word pistis can mean loyalty as well as faith. I was, I was, I was even thinking, Jordan, is that the video you watched? <laughs> because he's asking the same thing. Pistis means loyalty. Um, it can mean that, but that's not how Paul uses it. What Paul means is, when he uses it, is trust in someone else. We're justified by trusting someone else, not by trusting in our own works. Then might one express Paul's famous doctrine as justification by loyalty? <laughs> okay, that's not a good way of putting that, because that is certainly not what Paul is talking about. Okay, we're not justified by loyalty. I have to confess that's a new one on me. Are you suggesting that the individual's justification before God, according to Paul, includes some kind of demonstration of loyalty? All right, so is Paul talking about justification by some kind of demonstration of loyalty? No, it's chorus ergon namu. Apart from works. Okay? So it's not because of my demonstration of loyalty. Faith simply lays hold of Jesus Christ and relies only on him. Now listen to this answer. I, I'll tell you, Wright is in a league of his own in terms of a man who can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk without saying anything clear enough for you to understand what he's talking about. Listen to this. I think part of the problem, this is getting technical, so you forgive us, but this word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, which we normally translate as faith, as Martin says, means loyalty, trustworthiness, trustfulness, the whole range of, of things. And I think... It See, but that's totally unhelpful. What I would, if, if someone asked me that question, I would say, well, use it, use it in a verse. Where, what are you talking about? Okay, words can have real different meanings depending on where they're used and how they're used, right? I mean, th think about that. Uh, it can mean, uh, we normally translate it as faith, but it can mean loyalty and faithfulness and all this other stuff and, and works, basically. Well, yeah, that's right. The adjective, it can refer to that. So, someone is a pistos anthropos, meaning he is a faithful man. That's not how Paul uses the term faith or belief when he's talking about justification, which is what you're being asked about. Just that's so confusing. It drives me nuts. Listen to it again. We normally translate as faith, as Martin says, means loyalty, trustworthiness, trustfulness, the whole range of, of things. And I think in Romans itself, we see Paul exploiting those different meanings when he says up front that this is the gospel about Jesus, uh, the son of David, the son of God, raised from the dead, and through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Yeah, that's a, a phrase that is misused constantly. Romans 1, verse 5. The obedience of faith. Ba basically, what they take that to mean, and I, I would uh, look at this, um, that the term hupakaein, uh, uh, that's used there, ice hupakaein pisteos, the obedience of of faith, a faith, a pisteos is in the genitive case there, 
and uh, Hupakoe is uh, in the uh, accusative case. Um, apostleship unto obedience of faith, obedience of faith in, in all uh, the nations, among all the nations, um, in behalf of his name. Right. Obedience, I would look at that, the genitive as a genitive of, of agency or of origin, um, that the obedience arises from faith. It doesn't mean that obedience is faith. See, and that's what these guys are constantly trying to do. If they can overthrow your understanding of what the word faith is referring to, what belief means, if they can actually get you to think that belief is actually works in some way, then they can preach their false gospel. But Paul everywhere differentiates faith. In fact, he puts faith in the precise opposite place of works. In fact, later on in Romans, Romans 4, uh, 4 and 5, he says, to him who works, one who's you know trying to do the works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So when you go to work and you do your job and your boss pays you, he's not doing you, he's not giving you grace, he's giving you what you earned. Now, when it comes to justification, Bishop, right? What this says, but to the one who does not work. Okay, it is that that is a substantival participle. To the one not working, may ergazamino, the one not working. To actually, to de me, to the, the article there that's in the dative case is wrapping up that dative participle right there. But to the one not working, but believing, there's another post positive, de means but as an adversative, to the one who's not working, listen to me, listen to it carefully. If you're working, if you're working in some way to try to get yourself justified, you are going to hell. By trying to earn it, you demonstrate, you have no idea what the gospel is. If you think that by your loyalty, by your faithfulness, by what you do, you're going to get into heaven, you're not going to heaven. Who does God justify? Romans 4, 5. Here's a verse, here's a verse for the ages here. For all these false teachers that are talking about final salvation by fruit and all this other garbage, not realizing that God's justifying work, that is the fruit of the work of Jesus Christ. That is the application of the work of Jesus Christ to our legal standing before God, so we have a right to go to heaven. Romans 4, 5. But to the one not working, to deme ergazamano, pistuanti de epiton de kaunta, ton asebe lagitatai he pisteos altu ace de kaisuning. What that says is very, very, very simple, straightforward, and clear. But to the one not working, that is a substantial participle with a definite article in front of it that is functioning as a, really as a noun. To the one not working. Okay. Who's going to be justified? Who's going to heaven? Only those who are not working for it. To the one not working, and then pestuanti, but to be leaving, de. De is a post-positive, so it's got to go after the after the, the term there. Pestuanti, de. But to be leaving. But believing, epita de kaunta, upon the one justifying, the one who justifies the ungodly, tan de kaunta, Tan Asebe, the ungodly. Asebe means uh, ungodly, impious. He justifies the impious? He justifies the wicked? Yeah, while they're still wicked. He does it while they're still inherently wrong and evil and wicked. That's right. How? Lagizatai he pisteos altu means his faith, altu, is a, is a possessive, his pistis, belief, which is not works, not loyalty, not faithfulness. It is laying hold of Christ. His faith is accounted, lagidzatai, ice de as righteousness. 
His faith is reckoned as righteousness. To the one not working but believing upon the one justifying the ungodly, his faith is accounted unto righteousness. And then the next verse. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. N.T. Wright does not believe that righteousness is imputed to us apart from works. It's right there in the text. It's right there in the text. Just as David, kafa per kai David, just as David, legaton makarisman, speaks of the blessedness to Anthropu, of the man, ho hafeas, to whom God, lagizatai dekaiasunen, imputes righteousness, chorus ergon, apart from works. That's so simple. That's so easy. Even I understand it. It's so simple, straightforward, and clear. Who's going to heaven? Who's going to be justified? The one not working, but believing on the one who justifies the wicked. You know, Rome and N.T. Wright say God only justifies those who work for it. Paul says God justifies those who don't work for it. Uh, Paul or Rome and N.T. Wright say that God only justifies um, those that are righteous inherently. Um, Paul says that God justifies those who are asebes, wicked inherently. Well, how can he do that? By imputation. He imputes on his own authority the righteousness of the one in whose covenant headship we now stand. He has taken us out of column Adam and put us under column Christ, and now all that Christ did is ours by imputation. Ho ha theos, to whom God, lagizatai, imputes, dekaiasunen, righteousness, chorus, apart from, ergon, works. So, you go to heaven, if you're not working to get there. If you're working to get there, you don't understand Christianity, you're going to hell. God's going to hold all your sins against you, you will go to hell, I promise you. To be a Christian, you do not work for it. To the one not working, but in opposition to that, believing. Okay? Obedience of faith. Yeah, obedience arising from faith. I have a question. Why would you construct your doctrine of justification from a passage that has nothing to do with it? Romans 1.5 has nothing to do with justification. Obedience of faith. Meaning, the obedience that arises from true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you construct an entire edifice of theology on two words in the text in Romans 1.5 when you have a chapter after chapter after chapter of didactic teaching that contradicts your misuse of those two words? Because at the end of the day, he doesn't care what the Bible says. The Bible's not interesting. It's not of any interest to this guy. He is a heretic and a false teacher. And when are people going to see that? These people are treading on the holy ground of the cross of Christ and on what he did to save us from our sins. These are fighting words. And I am sick to death of the academy sitting there smugly, not willing to say anything. No excuse for it. That's another Caesar phrase. Caesar wanted obedient loyalty, thank you very much. Jesus is the Lord who wants obedient loyalty. The danger with that... Why? why really? So, the obedience of faith, we're supposed to think that, without the text making any allusions to anything like this, you know, Caesar's empire, Caesar was Lord, and no, Jesus is Lord. See, N.T. Wright thinks that's what the gospel is. What is the gospel? Jesus is Lord. Is that what the, the apostles went out and preached? 
They did preach that, yeah, Jesus is Lord and he's the king. But was that the essence of their preaching? No. They called people to repent of their personal sin against God so that they could be justified before God and saved before God. Is if you're asking the question of justification in terms of what do I have to do in order that God will be pleased with me, then it sounds as though I, I have to do something. I have to be loyal instead of just believe. And that's why we... What? What? So many category errors. So many... What is he talking about? We need to pan right back and say, nope, that's not what we're talking about. That is where the 16th century, and actually it wasn't their fault, got into a muddle because they were responding to the, to the Middle Ages. I've often said Luther and Calvin and the others, who are among my great heroes... No, they're not. L Luther, Calvin, and the others would excoriate this man in the most unmerciful terms as a glowing heretic. All of them would have. We're trying desperately to give biblical answers to late medieval questions. Wrong. They were giving biblical answers to the questions of all the ages. What must I do to be saved from the wrath of God so I can go to heaven and not hell? That's what they were asking. That's the question they were, they were asking and answering because that's the question the scriptures ask and answer. You see, what this guy wants to do is say, no, 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 what, what God needs to be answering is what I want to ask him. And that's the problem, right? This guy right here that you're listening to, N.T. Wright, I don't believe this guy's ever had a day in his life, not even a moment of his life, where he felt convicted of his sin and thought that he needed to be saved from, from the wrath of God. I don't think he even believes that there's hell. In fact, there's another video I need to play it where I don't think he believes that there is hell. That's much better than giving non-biblical answers to late medieval questions. But let's think about what the first century questions were, and they weren't yes, they, the same questions. Yes, they were. Yes, they were, Bishop Wright. They were the same questions. How can I, as a sinner, be right with God and go to heaven and not hell? The fact that you don't care about that question because it's of no interest to you, it doesn't change the, the reality that people under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit of God are always going to be asking that question. I've always thought, oh, how I wish N.T. Wright could have been there in Acts chapter 16 when the earthquake happened and Paul and Silas got out of jail and the jailer comes trembling at their feet and asks them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Bishop Wright would have been like, you're not even asking the right question. That's not the question. The question is, who is in the right? And how can we be part of the right covenantal community? Rubbish. Those convicted by the Holy Spirit need an answer. To how can I be saved from the wrath of God against me, against my sin? And that's where the slippage could, of course. But Thomas Cranmer, speaking of this doctrine specifically, writes, This proposition, that we be justified by faith only, freely, and without works, is spoken in order to take away clearly all merit of our works as being insufficient to deserve our justification at God's hand. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure, he believes that. Thank you, Bishop Cranmer. That's the guy that burned his hand to a cinder after he signed a recantation um, and of things that he didn't actually believe, and eventually he was put to death. And He's also the guy that stood at the, at the stake um, and yelled at the Pope, I denounce, you, I, de I denounce you as Christ's enemy and antichrist and all your false doctrines. Embrace that as an assertion of what Paul's saying. No, I embrace that as an assertion of what had to be said, urged... Yeah, see, he doesn't believe that that's what Paul's talking about. It had to be said, I embrace that. Let's listen to that again. This guy is an absolute, is an absolute wizard with words. Listen to this.
spirit of our works as being insufficient to deserve our justification at God's hand. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you embrace that as an assertion of what Paul's saying? No, I embrace that as an assertion of what had to be said urgently in the middle of the 16th century. And bless Cranmer for saying that, because that wasn't where he started, but he went to the stake for, for that and associated doctrines. But when, when he says, yes, I, I accept that, not as what Paul's talking about, but as something that desperately needed to be said and in the, that context, this guy is a snake. This guy is an absolute snake. He doesn't believe that. He doesn't believe that for anything. Thomas Cranmer believed in the substitutionary atonement. Thomas Cranmer understood what the gospel was all about. Thomas Cranmer got the fact that God is a God of wrath, righteous, real wrath against sin, and that our works cannot help justify us or make us right with God. N.T. Wright doesn't think you need to be made right with God. That's not even a category in his thinking. So the guy asks him, do you accept that as a, as a valid way of understanding what Paul says? Well, it's, it's what needed to be said at the time. Terrible. And say, that's what needed to be said to ward off the 15th century heresies. What needs to be said by Paul is that God intends to put the whole world right, point one. See, I wondered, is, um, is right a universalist? He, he sounds like it. And the, other, the stuff I've read and the stuff I've listened to, God is going to do that? Listen, he's going to put the whole world, listen. Said by Paul is that God intends to put the whole world right, point one. See, but what does that mean? Put the whole world right. I mean, what does that mean? He doesn't really tell you. God has dramatically launched and inaugurated this project by raising the crucified Jesus from the dead, point two, so that the world has in principle been put right and God now, through grace, through the gospel, puts human beings right so that they can be part of his putting right project for the world. And be what in the world? See, th this is the problem. He's monochromatic. Everything is ecclesiology. Everything is one-dimensional. Everything is about the church and who's in it. This guy has no, understand no, no understanding. He doesn't even have a soteriology because he doesn't think that we need a soter, a savior from sin. Everything's about ecclesiology. It's He's putting right this so you can be part of the putting right of this. Put what does he even mean by this? Does it make any sense? In part of that project does not require a demonstration by myself of good works, of effort. It, does, it doesn't require it, but as Luther himself would say, if it doesn't issue in that, something is wrong with the initial faith. I mean, that, that's, that's quite clear. If you don't believe in the penal substitutionary atonement, Luther would not even talk to you. He would have called you the devil himself, Bishop Wright. If, if, you, if you just, I mean, some of Luther's early treatises make this extremely clear, that faith works through love, according to Galatians. And love and faith, actually, and Paul are really quite close. They are both about trusting God and living... A no, no, they're not. L love and faith, the, the, the two terms are not like... He's not, he almost is acting like they're, they're the same word, practically, or that they're that synonymous. No, they're not. Faith is simply laying hold of, of Jesus Christ. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, meaning our trust is in him. We trust in Jesus Christ. Now, Jordan Foster asked a, a good question here, a question I've probably heard at least at least 485 times in my life. What about Zacharias and Elizabeth? Zacharias and Elizabeth are called blameless and righteous. In fact, the term dikaios is used there. The term um, for righteousness is used there. That they were just and blameless and walking in all the 
the commandments of God, Luke 1, 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Jordan, let me just explain this real quick. Any treatment of the biblical terms, and you look at, look at the lexicography, look at their semantic domains, look at how the, the terms can be used. Um, the, term, um, the term righteousness, uh, walking in all the commandments and all the, the uh, uh, ordinances of the Lord, blamelessly. There is a legal, judicial, forensic sense of righteousness, and then there's also the sense of being generally a morally upright person. Like someone would say that you're blameless, or that you're, that, yeah, he, he's definitely a righteous, a very godly man, a very righteous man. Not in the sense that by his good works, he's forensically declared righteous before God, okay? It's, it's simply a way of referring to general moral uprightness. So those are two primary meanings of the terms of the, of the deke family. There's dikaios, which is the adjective, there's dikaiosune, which is the noun, and there's dikaio, which is the a verb, okay? The, the term um, dikaiomasen that's used there, uh, dikaio uh, means righteous deed, okay, yeah, righteous deed, uh, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments of the Lord, um, amemptas, uh, amemtoi, that's used there, blameless, but that's simply referring to their uprightness and their godliness, okay? It's not, that is in no way even addressing. The, the context of the passage has nothing to do with justification, nothing at all to do with justification, it's talking about the stock from which John the Baptist was born, meaning he had godly parents. That's all that that's trying to say. Anyone that would go to Luke 1 to try to talk about justification obviously doesn't care about justification at all. Where, where would you go to, to discuss the issue of justification? You would go to the key sections of Romans and Galatians, all of which have been um, avoided in these discussions. Right? never goes to Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 8, Galatians 2, Galatians 3, Galatians 4, Galatians 5. He doesn't go to those passages. He never does. He always goes to somewhere else to try to prop up his, his pet theories. And it's a real shame. It's a real shame. It's one of the basic lessons of hermeneutics and exegesis. You go to the text of scripture that address the topic that you're addressing. You don't go to passing statements here or there or off to other places. Okay, so, yeah. Uh, how do you stop people from trusting it for, for an act of works? Um, you just point out all that passage is addressing is that they were morally upright people. The term dikaiosune, dikaioma, that's used there is simply a way of referring to someone who's godly. It's not saying that they were justified by their works. And we know that it can't mean that because the rest of the Bible, when it does address how we're justified before God, always is very quick and very clear to point out to the one not working. To the one not working but believing. Okay, let's listen to the rest of this. Life shaped by the death of Jesus. So um, th th this is part of a much larger conversation, of course. But I think if you start by saying, how do I get to heaven? Do I have to do good works or not? Wrong question. Y'all need to catch that. If you start with, how do I get into heaven? Do I need just to do good works? Wrong question. Listen to that again. Make sure you're all hearing this. So, reform people who think, ah, oh, T. Right, no, we don't agree with them on everything. This guy's a heretic. He's not, he, he is not a Christian. He's not. He, he. This guy has never preached the true gospel, not even one time in his life that I've ever heard. And he is the last person on this planet that I would ever ask to talk to someone that I cared about if they were dying and didn't know Christ. This is the last guy, literally, that I would ever send to talk to them. Listen. So, um, th th this is part of a much larger conversation, of course, but I think if you start by saying, how do I get to heaven, do I have to do good works or not, wrong question. Well, how do I get to heaven? Wrong question. Listen. But if you ask that question, the answer is no. You simply believe and trust. God reaches out and you say... Simply believe and trust what? 
it doesn't do any good to say believe, 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 unless you tell tell people what it is they're supposed to believe. You tell people you are a sinner. The law of God condemns you. You need to believe that what Jesus Christ did, He did for you. You need to embrace Him as your Savior. You need to repent and trust only in Him, and that His cross forgives you of all of your sins, past, present, future, and that His righteousness is yours by faith in Him alone, and not by anything that you do. Thank you and believe. But if you start by and saying, Paul articulates. And Paul articulates that, but the works which Paul rules out, which Cranmer is echoing there, as in Galatians 3, as in Romans 3, as in Galatians 2 as well. Yeah, the passages that refute everything I'm saying that I would never go to and actually read in their presence. Listen, and Cranmer understood them correctly, not right. Listen. Primarily for Paul, these are the works of the law which mark out the Jewish people from their non-Jewish neighbors. Wrong! They are not primarily that, sir. You are dead wrong about that. Dead wrong. These are not primarily the works. So, so what Cramer is referring to, Thomas Cramer would never have accepted that interpretation. That when Paul excludes works, he's just talking about dietary ceremonial works. Listen to how he, listen to how he lists them. Circumcision, Sabbath, the food laws, and going to the temple and so on. Paul's no, he's excluding all works of any kind. Dietary, ceremonial, and the Ten Commandments. How do I know that? Because that's what the text says. Over and over and over and over again. When Paul turns to the Jews in Romans chapter 2, he says, beginning in, in verse 17, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and, and so on and so forth. Then he says in verse 21, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Question. Bishop Wright. The prohibition against stealing. Is that... Is that, when, when Paul excludes works, is that just... Primarily for Paul, these are the works of the law which mark out the Jewish people from their non-Jewish neighbors. Circumcision, Sabbath, the food laws, and going to the temple and so on. Baloney. Paul's exclusion of works is not limited to that. Not limited to that. He is excluding all works in obedience to any laws not just the ones that primarily marked out Jews from their Gentile neighbors, all of the laws. Verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You preach that a man should not steal. Do you steal? Prohibition against stealing. That's commandment number eight in the Decalogue in the Ten Commandments. Verse 22, you who say do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Commandment number seven in the Decalogue. That's not a dietary. That's not a, those, those aren't laws that just set them apart from their non-Jewish neighbors. That's not circumcision and dietary laws and temple ordinances. That's in the Ten Commandments. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Prohibition against making uh, graven images. Commandment number two. This is talking about all works, anything done in us or by us. And Paul is so comprehensive about it. He says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Therefore, we conclude after looking at what, what Jesus Christ did, the righteousness by which we are saved is revealed apart from the law. It's not by our law keeping. It's revealed in and by Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, which is a word that, I have no idea what N.T. Wright thinks it means, since he doesn't believe that there, God even has wrath against sin. The propitiation, helosterion, is referring to the removal of wrath. He set him forth as a propitiation, Romans 3.25, through faith in his blood, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had passed over the sins that were previously committed. 
God is just and is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Oh, he's just talking about dietary, ceremonial, circumcision, things like that. No, he's not. What he's saying is that the law has been fulfilled by someone else. Our law-keeping doesn't save us. It's the, it's the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the text itself in Romans 2 includes not just circumcision, but all the laws. In fact, another thing that's often overlooked, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, why did they gather to, to talk in that council? What were they talking about? Acts 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. <gasps> See, it's just, just circumcision. Well, yeah, keep, keep reading. Keep reading. Verse 5 of Acts 15, Acts 15, 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And they point out, no, it is by grace that we are saved, not by works. Okay, it is through the grace of our God that we are saved. Okay, let me find that, that verse here. Acts 15, verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they, as the Gentiles. Meaning, it's not by anything we do. Anyone who tries to limit Paul's use of works to merely ceremonial works, merely circumcision, they're doing that because they're trying to, to smuggle in something else into the salvation equation that has to do with us and what we do, our works. And Wright has said in many other places, we are justified and we get into heaven on the basis of the whole life lived. And if you believe that, you're going to hell. I'm going to get into heaven by the life that Christ lived vicariously for me. And I do my good works as an act of gratitude to God, exactly as the word of God teaches explicitly, 2 Corinthians 4, 15. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving. What does grace cause? Gratitude. Thanksgiving. What does grace cause? Gratitude. Eucharistia. Eucharistia. Thanksgiving. Gratitude. Grace leads to gratitude. Okay, let's uh, let's listen to a little bit more here. Paul says, don't have to do that anymore. That was a good but temporary dispensation. <sighs> wow. Horrible. All right. Another, one other video uh, called What is the Gospel by N.T. Wright. And I'm not going to listen to all this. It's 15 minutes long, thir 13 minutes and 15 seconds. But it's a bunch of smaller questions. This question is, if you had a couple minutes, how would you communicate the gospel with someone? Okay, so... N.T. Wright's got a couple minutes, just a couple minutes, to share the gospel with someone. Here's what he would say. Listen to this. I remember a long time ago now, in the 1970s, when we had one of those NIAC conferences, and John Stott gave the summary speech, and he said, people are always saying, what is the irreducible minimum gospel? And I remember him saying, I don't want an irreducible minimum gospel, I want the whole gospel, and it was kind of a wonderful rhetorical flourish. Now, of course, we all know that there are times uh, somebody sitting on a railway train next to you suddenly says, is that book reading, you're reading about God, can you tell me about God or Jesus or something, and you've got five minutes before the deck stop, what do you say? Well, this is great, great question. So, what's he going to do? Well, you want to you wanna try to hit them with the law, because through the law, we become conscious of sin. Therefore, the law was our pedagogos, our tutor to lead us to Christ, so I might be justified by faith. So, Wright's going to say, well, you want to ask them about, about their own sin, I, I, tell them about your, your sin. 
how you have lied and how you've committed adultery in, in your heart. You've done all kinds of things and how Jesus has paid the price to, to reconcile you to God and encourage that person to believe. Here's what N.T. Wright would say if he had just a couple minutes to talk to someone and with, that he would never see again, to give them the essence of the gospel. Listen. We've all been in situations like that, and basically you say a quick prayer and you go for it. But at the center of it must be Jesus himself. Not a theory, not uh, um, an idea, but actually something about this person. Because, and I was just talking to a friend yesterday who, who said, um, you know, here is this wonderful house, which is the Christian faith. Uh, what's the front door? Where do people come and go? And the answer is, it, it is Jesus himself that take Jesus away and you're left with a bunch of very odd theories which may or may not make sense to people. But the, the You're already not making sense. You just got to start with Jesus. Well, you got to say something about him, don't you? Figure of Jesus himself always has been central and utterly... What could be more obvious? Don't you need to say something about what he did? Who he is? Pelling. Um... And of course, it's to do with who he was, it's to do with the meaning of his death, it's to do with his resurrection particularly, but it's to do with the fact that in and through Jesus, the living God um, opened the great door of his new world, which he's been uh, intending to make. Yeah, so that's what you want to say to people. You got five minutes, Jesus opened the new world. <laughs> what does that even mean? What is this seed picker talking about? and invited us all to come through it with him. And somehow to say that, and you can contextualize that every which way you like for the person who maybe uh, only has two minutes to live or only two minutes beside you on the- Please don't say that to someone who's got two minutes to live. If, you, if you're talking to someone that's got two minutes to live, you need to read Romans 3, beginning at verse nine to the end of the chapter and comment on it along the way, okay? Don't do this. Somehow this person has opened the world to his new world, open the gate to his new world, and he's inviting all of us to come in. What are you talking about? Where is the gospel in this guy's thinking? Train, something about Jesus, something about what God did through him, particularly through his death and resurrection. Those are the things, however you're going to stitch it together, which want to be in that irreducible minimum. And that's it? That is garbage. Absolute garbage and worthless. What he just said, totally worthless. Completely and totally worthless. Okay, the next question. Do we need to talk about repentance when we preach the gospel? Listen to this answer. This is this. Here's another answer, answer for the... Uh, when Jesus the, says, repent and believe in the good news uh, towards the, uh, the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, it's very interesting that there's a, a, an almost exact parallel to that in the Jewish writer Josephus, who's writing a little bit later than Mark, but not much later. And he talks about a time when he went to Galilee in the 60s of the first century, and he said to one of the brigand leaders, who was we would today call him a warlord or something like that, he said, I told him to repent and believe in me. And what Josephus was saying was, give up your way of doing stuff, of um, war of national liberation or whatever. I've got a better idea. Come with me. And when you see it like that, wait a minute, that's what those words sounded like in Galilee in the first century. When Jesus told people to repent, he didn't basically mean, in our sense, have some kind of very sad religious experience. Repentance is grieving over and hating your sin. That's what metanoia means. 
Um, okay, if that's true, he didn't want you to have some sad religious experience. Well, what about the the prostitute in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 7? Comes into Simon the Pharisee's house and weeps at the feet of Jesus. She was repentant. She was repentant. And Jesus saw that and, and pronounced her sins forgiven because he, because he saw that. You're going the wrong way. You're going to have to turn around because God is doing a new thing. And if you're going to be part of that new thing, you're going to have to give up the way you've been going. Now, I cannot imagine explaining coming the way that God is now going unless you also make it clear to people that they're going to have to give up the way they've been going, which is cultural as well as personal. It's societal as well as individual. It's the whole deal. It'll take a while to unpack that, but you've got to have both side by side. Repentance isn't the same as the good news. You could simply say to somebody, you're going to have to give up doing stuff the way you've done it and then leave them to it. Um, but if you're going to... What can I say? The guy is, is just incredible at talking without saying anything. Talking without saying anything. I cannot, I cannot make heads or tails out of anything he's saying. Say the good news. It's always got to have the implication. This is something quite different from the path you've been on up to now. <laughs> so nothing about sin. Listen to this next one. What would be your what would what, what advice? What would your advice be to a young evangelist? Now listen to this. A young evangelist. What would, good advice to a young evangelist. I had an email just uh, early this morning from somebody wanting to um, take his study of Paul's theology to, to the next stage, as it were, somebody's uh, sort of master's degree level, asking me where it was all going, what should be about. And I'm afraid I gave him the, the same old-fashioned advice that I give to everybody. You just have to soak yourself in the scripture much more than you'd ever imagine doing. That's a great idea. <laughs> soak yourself in the scripture so that you're never led astray by this kind of theobabble preferably in the original languages, and you have to soak yourself mm -hmm. in prayer, and you have to listen hard to the cries of pain that are coming, whether from your next-door neighbor or from people on the other side of the world. Uh, Jesus himself uh, and the New Testament itself teach us that the way we get to know who we are and where we're called to be is through scripture, through prayer, through the sacraments, Jesus himself constituting these as the way of life for God's people, baptism and the Lord's Supper particularly. Um, but then also the cry of the poor in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us that's where we will actually meet him without even realizing we're doing so. And it seems to me that in each generation, there is no formula, there is no, hey, this is the book you should read and then it'll all be all right. Because God wants to do new things but the people through whom he will do those new things are people who are Bible people, prayer people, sacrament people, and listening to the poor people. And somehow Jesus will come afresh to them and please God through them in ways that we can't at the moment imagine or predict, let alone control. So that's his advice to a young evangelist. It has not, nothing to do with the gospel itself, nothing to do with learning the content of the cross work of Christ and how to explain the gospel clearly to people. Uh, how to uh, um, help people see the depth of their own sin, how to use the law of God to bring that about, and how to explain the cross of Jesus Christ, understanding the doctrine of, of justification by faith. None of that. It's just not part of his world at all. So, wow. Okay, so I'm going to call this program the N.T. Wright Gospel Horror Files. But, man, I'll tell you. This, what, I mean, do you agree with Dr. Sproul? Uh, they asked him, what is your view of, of N.T. Wright and um, his view on justification and the gospel? And his response, with no hesitation, was it destroys it. Destroys the doctrine of imputation and the gospel. 
is his, are his views on justification heretical? If, they're, if they aren't, then there's no such thing as heresy. N.T. Wright's not a Christian. He is not our brother. Um, he has no understanding of the gospel whatsoever. Um, no understanding of justification by faith. Doesn't understand what the cross of Christ does. I don't think he even believes in hell. Um, has absolutely, He rejects and mocks the idea of a penal substitutionary atonement. So why, why are Reformed people so hesitant to say that? I don't understand it. I never have understood it, and it drives me nuts, if you can't tell. I don't get it. I don't get it. Jordan, really, you think I do a good Brit British imitation? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not very good at that, but, but I appreciate you saying that. And you're right, Gwali uh, Gwilt. If I, uh, forgive me if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. He needs to read Romans 3 and 4 a few times. He needs to read Romans 3 and 4 with Jesus Christ in his heart. You see, the, the Bible is only a mystery to people who read it without Christ. That's, that is heartbreaking to me, because I think N.T. Wright doesn't understand the Bible at all. I think it's, it's frustrating to him that he doesn't understand it, because Christ does not live in his heart. Christ does not live in his heart, and he doesn't know. He doesn't know uh, the Lord. Um, and it's very sad. I've prayed for Wright's salvation. I'm, I'm convinced he doesn't has absolutely no idea uh, what the gospel is, um, and certainly doesn't believe it. He mocks it. When, it. when it does come up, he just discards it. Or, or he'll feign that he does believe it. Yeah, I got all that. I just want to add all this other stuff and the social dimension and, and the social gospel and all this other stuff. So, okay. So, N.T. Wright, Gospel Horror Files. Um, <laughs> um, gotta love the gospel. Please stay loyal to the gospel. And uh, thank you for watching or for listening. <laughs>